Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Ulrike Giro er et fænomen i den tyske offentlighed. Hun går ind i de teknokratiske, vanskelige, komplekse debatter med nogle meget klare idéer og sætter ild til debatterne. Først ser det ud som om, at den ild ikke rigtig får nogen betydning, men så går der et stykke tid. Og når andre så også er blevet trætte af, at grundlæggende demokratiske spørgsmål som hvem skal bestemme, hvordan skal der bestemmes, og hvordan skal magten grundlægges. Når andre også er blevet trætte af, at det er blevet overladt til teknokrater og økonomiske imperativer, så vender de tilbage til Ulrike Gerus idéer og kan se, at der faktisk var et lys og en varme for ildebranden, som man kan bruge til at indrette et nyt samfund. Ulrike Gerus har foreslået, at vi skulle nedlægge nationalstaterne og lave Europa om til en republik. Hun har skrevet en bog, som er et langt opråb mod hele den tyske coronaindsats, den hedder Wer schweigt stemt zu, altså den, der siger samtykker, hvor hun udråber et intellektuelt kollaps i Tyskland, fordi de affandt sig med meget, meget autoritære nedlukningsmekanismer. Og senest så har hun sagt, at den værste fred mellem Rusland og Ukraine er bedre, end at krigen fortsætter. Good evening and welcome to our viewers and listeners here in Denmark and especially Good evening to you, Ulrike Giroud, who is with us from Berlin. Hi, good evening. I de her dage er både krigen og coronanedlukningen og hele indretningen af Europa sat på spil. Og jeg kunne ikke forestille mig nogen bedre til at tale med om at få idéerne ind i centrum af den kamp. For gjort den offentlige samtale og de langsomme samtaler væsentlige for den måde, vi indretter os på, end Ulrike Giroud. Hun er i dag professor ved Universitetet i Bonn. Og hun har grundlagt det, der hedder European Democracy Lab. Så er hun forfatter og som sagt klar til at sætte ild til europæiske debatter. I've been wondering, because if, you, if we look at your earlier career, then you were working within the political system. You were working as an assistant for Karl Lammers and you worked for the CDU. You've worked for the French Socialist Party as well. And today you're the founder of the European Democracy Lab, a professor at the University of Bonn. And a, and a very engaged public intellectual. It seems that you've worked your way from within the political system to looking at it from the outside and influencing it by ideas. But I'm not sure. How would you characterize your trajectory? Well, I mean, to be honest, life is a river, right? So um, first, let me say I'm, I didn't plan, you know? I mean, it's like you look back and you feel like this has been planned, but it has been planned. There is also divorce and there's marriage and there's changing the country and then there are kids, you know? I mean, this also <laughs> needs to be said. So, um, but uh, to to be brief on my trajectory, yes, you are right. I started in the political system because I'm very marked by being born in Rhineland. So it was Adenauer de Gaulle, it was, um, uh, you know, Franco-German relations were very strong in the 80s, remember Kohl Mitterrand. And so I entered the political system working for the forum spokesperson Karl Lamas in the 90s. At the moment we did the Maastricht Treaty in 92. So I spent a couple of years being in the Bundestag in the moment we did this big European Treaty in 92. And this basically inspired me. And uh, I, I know it's hard to remember these days, but by then everybody was in favor of Europe. Everybody would do Franco-German engine. We would do Maastricht, Everclose a Union. Those were the days, right? 
And because um, in these days or years, um, there wasn't political sort of um, struggle about Europe. It was just like we do Europe all together. I could change from a CDU person in Germany to Jacques Delors, who was then president of the European Union, you know, and he was socialist. Yeah, but uh, it didn't matter whether you are Christian Democrat or socialist. It was just like we do Europe. And and so because I was married by then to a French guy, I moved to Paris, worked for Jacques Delors. So that's the first decade when I was, say, in the political system, as you say. But then um, I also basically because of changing because of divorce and stuff like this i moved back to yeah i mean it's it's important to say because now people look at me and it it feels like a grand design of a career but it wasn't yeah yeah so you go with the flow and so i moved back to berlin and then i had the next 10 years say between the year 2000 and 2010 as a think tank career right um and i had many think tanks like the german marshall fund european council on foreign relations whatever and then i was and this is important for the talk i was really struck by the banking crisis i felt for the first time there's a story out here which is not the europe i was working for yeah it was the you remember austerity you, re you remember what we did to the Greek. it was just like i felt like i worked 15 years in the spirit of ever closer union called de l'omiteron and then came the banking crisis and you feel like no we don't do austerity we don't throw out the greek i mean what is this as a narrative that uh, the greeks have been causing this crisis that the banks have initially causing yeah all these things so I went, I became for the first time, and this is important for the idea of the European Republic, I, I became for the first time very skeptical about the narrative of the EU, you know, and uh, then I founded the European Democracy Lab, and that's perhaps the last decade of my life, so the period between 2013 and now. So I founded the European Democracy Lab, and because this was quite successful, because we did a lot of work on the European Republic and how could it look like, then I uh, became these engagements at universities, first in Austria and now at the University of Bonn. So political career sort of in the system is the 90s, think tank is the first decade of 2000 and then um, my own think tank and academic research is the is the third decade in a way <laughs> it's very interesting because for me i remember the banking crisis as the first time where i realized that we were all writing about capitalism and we had critic critics that we thought were very radical and we had this radical criticism of the, the of capitalist society and the marriage between capitalism and state and then when first the financial crisis and then the banking crisis, they erupted, I realized it was totally different from what we had been describing because we'd been doing a very radical theories about capitalism. And then when it happened, it was, in, it was so complicated and institutionally, it was very difficult to really understand. So I felt at the time, and we talked about it here in this newspaper that we really needed to step up our intellectual game. That, mm -hmm. that the theories, they, they, were, they weren't helping us, that we needed to understand the inside game of institutions to mm -hmm. provide a criticism that wasn't just, you know, standing at a rock concert with a t-shirt saying capitalism mm -hmm. is stupid. So I had the opposite uh, experience. Look, I, I think the banking crisis is from, in many respects, a turning point, yeah? First, with respect to the institutional system of the EU. Because as you remember, in the Euro governance, Germany was basically becoming hegemonic. 
Yeah, this is an unoutspoken thing, and obviously nobody in Germany talks about this. But if you look at France and what the French would write, your colleague uh, Jean Catremer, who has this blog Coulisses de Bruxelles, he would openly write that this is now a the Germans did decide on euro governance, right? So there was a hegemonic turn. There is a book of uh, Hans Kundnani, The Paradox of German Power. This is all in that moment. Yeah. So first institutional turn of Germany. The second, as you say, what was the capitalist crisis that we all detected? In a way, it was uh, a socialist solution on a capitalist crisis because we saved basically banks with state payers' money, uh, with taxpayers' money. Yeah. So it's uh, in a way it's, it's completely absurd what we did because uh, I mean we can discuss whether we needed to do it. We had the Lehman Brothers experience. Um, I can see the point that uh, you couldn't let down melting the banks. Yeah. But in essence, you mobilize taxpayers money for saving uh, a capitalist party yeah so there was a very weird moment in this yeah and uh, and the third is that to cope with all it we then ordered austerity yeah um, and we basically had a hard time to the so-called pigs you remember the pigs portugal spain and so on and so forth so uh, the austerity po uh, policy then caused a lot of political pr uh, problems remember zurica remember iglesias uh, podemos uh, remember uh, beppe grillo you know so we basically smashed the party systems of the european south and we hurt enormously to the european systems yeah but we also and this is important um, we basically had national answers to a pan-European crisis because we played the basically the hard-working Germans against the lazy Greeks, remember the talks, yeah, or uh, uh, whatever we played, the Austrians against the Italians or the North against the South. So we basically had a national narrative to explain the crisis as if the Greek have been guilty in order to understand that this is a capitalist crisis from the banks and it should have been solved in a different way rather than do, by doing austerity of the North to the South, yeah. So we had profoundly wrong solutions. Um, I could make a long argument, and I won't do here, but I could make a long argument that the banking crisis basically was the opening of a decade of crisis of Europe. Because then we we went from banking crisis to austerity crisis to refugee crisis to social crisis to pandemic crisis to Ukrainian war. So it's a decade of crisis, yeah. But uh, if you look at the data, and this is important, the banking crisis opened the populist decade of Europe. Look at the data of France. During 2012, precisely the moment when Draghi would say whatever it takes, you know, to save the system, Marine Le Pen in the French elections of 2012 had 15 percentage points more in the election. So it was the first boom of Marine Le Pen in presidential elections. You look at the Peace Party, 2015 Poland. Orban was already there in place, yeah, but Orban had a populist turn because in the first decade of the new century, Orban was the good guy. He was beloved by Helmut Kohl. Hungary was the showcast country for, you know, the good pupil of the East, yeah. It was only when the banking crisis hit Europe and when um, Hungary that was planning on joining the euro and couldn't join because of the banking crisis that Orban had a populist turn because um, many Hungarians had bought houses already in euro uh, currency and then had to pay it back in forint. Yeah? So the banking crisis was for many reasons the opening of the huge social crisis in Europe and the social and austerity crisis brought populism right in the way that Walter Benjamin would put it that um, 
before every populist period or fascist period, you have a failed social revolution. Yeah, And if you point to this quote of Benjamin, um, you remember the article perhaps that Charles Taylor had in The Guardian. Yeah, yes. What if Europe turns left? Yeah, and this article was translated in Germany by Schirmacher, Frank Schirmacher, who was by then the edi big editor feuilleton uh, of the Europe of the uh, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. So I think we can make the point that because Europe, say, didn't turn left in the banking crisis, didn't do the social pillar stuff, didn't do European unemployment scheme, which was on the agenda. Yeah, uh, Laszlo Andor, the Hungarian um, commissioner in 2014, presented plans for a European unemployment scheme on the European table. Yeah, but Europe didn't turn left. And because it didn't turn left, meaning social pillar, no austerity, um, it then became populist uh, with ever increasing results uh, for the populist parties. The AfD was founded in 2012, so you can see clear relations. And I think this is now very harmful for the political discussion we are in. So um, I think the banking crisis in many respects is really key for the European development of the last decade. Yeah, and there's a, there's a wonderful point in your new book that you put very radically, which is that over the last decade, maybe it's the it's the right wing, the right populists who are providing the radical critique of the system. And it used to be on the left. It used to be the left challenging the basic systems. And and I remember at the moment that we have had the writers that we appreciate a lot, like uh, Jacques Rancière or Slavoj Žižek, and, and who were putting forth radical ideas. And they were not, they didn't have, they weren't efficient. They weren't efficient to criticizing and reforming systems and they weren't really mobilizing. And I remember sitting here watching that the right were just gaining momentum. All the discontent was, was fueling the right. And then the left got scared and say, well, we must defend the systems again. We must defend the system against the right. And it, and it seems this was a moment when the left actually became conservative. Uh, I totally agree. This is why I pointed to the, uh, say, anchor time. Yeah, between banking crisis, Europe didn't turn left in the say social social sense. Yeah, and then came populism, as the street always goes right. You know, so um, we need a definition of what right is. Yeah, but uh, uh, talking about the EU. Um, we have been seeing FPÖ in Austria a little bit earlier and uh, also other populist parties like the True Finns or uh, Gerd Wilders in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, But if you look at the real sort of um, upcoming populist movement, say Marine Le Pen, uh, Peace, Orban in the, in the last decade, right? Um, I think the real point is that um, they have been uh, daring to criticize very openly the EU and the systemic and dysfunctional structures of the EU in the past decade. Before, it was not so much allowed. Remember, we did the constitutional treaty in 2003. The French voted no in 2005 and the Dutch voted no. Then there was sort of a long silence. Nobody wanted to come back to the constitutional idea. Remember? Yeah. Then came the banking crisis. So the banking crisis hit an incomplete Europe, incomplete in the sense of Maastricht Treaty, 92 ever closer union. And this was incomplete. The only thing we had was the euro. Yeah. And then the banking crisis hit this unperfect or dysfunctional uh, Europe. 
And uh, many Americans observers were basically saying it's politics stupid. Yeah, the Americans could hit their fix their right. banking crisis in two years. Yeah, just because they had fiscal capacity, they had decision power, and that was the thing we were la lacking. Yeah, instead we were discussing about interest rest rates and whatever we discussed. Yeah, but we didn't discuss the central point: lack of sovereignty, lack of decision making, and no fiscal capacity. Yeah, and it was taboo to discuss this. So um, what happened is that um, uh, this was the moment where the populist parties sized this sort of protest, austerity, the system is not, not good for the use of Europe. Remember Stefan Issel, uh, Andy Nievu, yeah? the use demonstrating, the use of Europe demonstrating in 2012 at the 10 years of Euromaking yeah? in, the, in, the, in the doors of ECB in Frankfurt, there were a very huge uh, diem was founded, Varoufakis, remember all this. yeah. Yes. So um, in a way, the positive uh, token of the banking sort of crisis protest was that, and I will come to this, was that there was a sort of birth of European civil society. For the first time, you could see that especially the use and the use of the southern countries would say, hey, we are in, in this together. We are not the Greeks or the Italians or the Spanish or the Germans. Yeah, we are in this sort of Euro mess all together and uh, something is going wrong. And then you had two discussions coming back to the populist. You had the more progressives like Diem who would say uh, we need Euro Alta and a different Europe. There was a lot of talk and writing about the different Europe. So there was a desire to have a different Europe, social, sustainable, uh, clearly functioning institutional. So that was the progressive sort of path. Yeah. And the non-progressive part was the right wing critique sort of this system uh, is not good. Yeah. So the right would do it sort of offensively against the system, the people against the system. The EU is a dysfunctional system. We are the people. We want sovereignty, identity, whatever. Yeah. And the more progressives were doing uh, stuff and a lot of writing on, on a transnational Europe, like European Alternatives, for instance, yeah, is a very big uh, European NGO. And they did a lot of work based on Etienne Balibar, uh, on Etienne Balibar's work on European citizenship. Yeah, can we be united as European citizens? So it was on the more progressive side, intellectually, was the banking crisis the birth of something like um, European civil society, a European citizenship notion, yeah, and transnational sort of thinking. So the very important paradigm change, I think, intellectually was that the banking crisis shifted the EU integration project from integration to democracy, right? So we did before, EU states were trying to integrate. Yeah, but after the banking crisis, there was this moment where everybody fell together in that sort of euro mess. Yeah, and then came a discussion about European democracy. And if you shift for integration to democracy, you also shift the actor. If you do integration, then the states are the actor. If you do democracy, the citizens are the actor. Yeah, so that I think was a very profound intellectual change happening right straight away after the banking crisis. Yeah, but coming back to the populist critique. The dangerous, dangerous, the, the sort of thing about this populist critique is that in essence, it's right. 
you have basically no uh, European uh, uh, social science person like Klaus Offer, Jürgen Habermas, Hauke Brunkhorst, whoever, yeah, look at all the French, German, Italian writings, who would say that the Euro governance system or the EU's institutional system, what we call Zui Generis, which is this trilogy, the council with the parliament, blah, 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 that this is a sufficient or efficient or a legitimate um, uh, political system. So, so the, there's a lot of, say, social or social science critique of the system. But you are right that those who are writing all these articles, like Jürgen Habermas in 2012, uh, uh, all these texts were not uh, sort of taken by the political system. Yeah? And then comes the, uh, popul came the populist who would, in essence, do the same critique of the system, the same structural critique of the system, but they amalgated it with racism and misogynism and whatever, yeah? And so the critique became inacceptable. So the valid critique, because it turned to the right-wingers, was no longer acceptable to the system people, yeah? And then the system had nothing better to do than to go back and say, okay, Article 7, you are a populist, so we can't accept you. Yeah, We do not need to hear you and your arguments, and we do not need to listen to your critique because you are populist. Yeah? So the system answered with a formal critique to the arguments of the populist. And I think we are still stuck with this. And um, looking at the AfD, I'm German, the AfD had a party congress a couple of weeks ago and um, the, there was a, a text by AfD presented to the party congress, Europa Neudenken, thinking new about Europe. There's nothing bad about thinking new about Europe. I did this in my, you know, uh, you mentioned the book, but uh, the, the European Republic is Europa Neudenken, profoundly Neudenken, yeah? So um, the problem is, if only the populist, the AfD, offers to rethink Europe, then it's a deadlock. Yeah, it needs to come again into the system. And to finish on a positive token, if you have listened to Olaf Scholz' speech in Prague uh, yeah. recently, yeah, he was calling for radical reform of the EU. So now the system, I think, is coming to grips that there's something profoundly sort of dysfunctional and that we need to spend more um, intelligence on what we do. Yeah, and I think ideas shaping society always come with a certain delay, like Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring in 1962, and it took 10 years for, for Richard Nixon to come up with legislation. You wrote texts about how Europe should be a democracy, how we should think of Europe as a, a, as a republic. And then when you have a crisis or a moment that you're in now, then you have produced some ideas for people to pick up, or you have Thomas Piketty with his yeah. that that. So it's not like you as an intellectual say, well, we should democratize Europe. And then you have political leaders saying, hey, let's do it now. I think it's more that you have a rupture and you see that the old ideas aren't working anymore. And then they come into play. Yeah, and I give you a, a very, very good point. Uh, thank you. And I I, I, look at the euro. We planned the euro since 1970. Yeah, Werner Plan, Luxembourg finance minister. Then came Giscard and Schmidt, 79, the equi basket currencies. Yeah. Then came uh, Jacques Delors, who planted the euro, the euro, the currency, the common currency, the single currency into the European Single Act in 86. Then came the European Council in Hannover. And again, Dumas and Genscher would talk about a currency union. But everybody would say, 
nonsense, utopian, you know, I, whatever, no common currency. And then came 89, German fall of the wall. And then something needed to happen. Yeah, Thatcher, Mitterrand, everybody concerned, big Germany. Then we remembered in Germany, uh, because the system was basically falling apart, yeah, GDR uh, and so. And then Germany was basically remembering that we always promised that European and German unification are the same coin, two sides of the same medal, right? And then after doing the German unification treaty, we did the European unification treaty, basically in the very same historical moment, 1892, and that was the Maastricht Treaty about ever closer union. So you're perfectly right that I think only because we were in a system rupture, something that was planned and thought through decades before could sneak into political reality. And my question here for you, having looked at the European Union and tried to change it, democratize it for years, is that when I look at the last moments of crisis we had, it seems you think, well, now we have the COVID crisis and we're all of a sudden looking at the supply chain and thinking, well, we can't let markets handle that. We have to put political considerations before markets. And I thought, well, this is a political opening on the European level that the EU is starting to emerge as a... As a, as a geopolitical actor. And now we, we have this with this energy independence on Russia and, and it seems that, well, we must have control over our own energy. Every time I think now we see a new moment, now we see something new happening and you see huge stage intervention during COVID. And I say, well, well, uh, Keynesianism is back. And then you realize, well, this is just another way of maintaining the, the status quo. And my question of course is, What you're seeing with the speech by Olaf Scholz this week and the openings that you see in Europe, is this just a new kind of politics of necessity or do you see a real opening and the possibility of actually transformation of transforming European institutions and civil society? Okay, so let's... Um, uh, I know it's a big question. It's a big question. Let's go back to the sort of Keynesian moment of the beginning and this sort of Corona bonds question and the rescue package and everything, yeah? I think we have all forgotten that we were standing on the balconies uh, applauding to the health service people, right? Uh, and we would all sing Bella Ciao, which I always found wrong at the period because it's a partisan song, yeah? But what, what you remember, we had a huge yes. moment of solidarity, yeah? And I think, and I put this in my book, um, the solidarity is gone. So uh, we have all seen that the corona crisis and the money that was basically uh, fueled uh, to the system uh, ended up with the wealthy people. Yeah, it's uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, everybody bought uh, by Amazon. The, the magazines were closed, the shops were closed, the inner cities were basically dying uh, and so on and so forth. So the, the, the lower quintile has really suffered. Yeah, so it was a wealth distribution sort of crisis yeah and it was not about solidarity so it, it was about enrichment of those who already had a lot of money yeah and i think it's very important that we that we come to grips with this because we fueled the markets yeah we want we had that rescue package of 750 billion uh, half loans half uh, direct spending uh, but we enriched the rich yeah so uh, it wasn't a keynesian moment although we dreamed of a keynesian moment 
and we um, we did something. I mean, there is this next generation EU program package, yeah, which is nice. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of money to do now transformation of the EU, digital transformation, sustainability, climate policies, and so I'm not against, yeah. So to be precise, we had an EU budget before 0.9. Uh, the next generation package added uh, 0 0.6, so we are now at 1.5, yeah? And so we nearly doubled the European budget. That is not trivial. And Olaf Scholz, and this is not trivial neither, when it was all signed, so in May 2020, Olaf Scholz had a very, very interesting speech already about the need of a fiscal uh, constitution of Europe, yeah? So Olaf Scholz, in a way, has a sort of European fiscal federalism, yeah, that we already discussed um, at the constitution moment in 2003, yeah? But... Um, to go back to your point, there is the question of democratization on the one hand and the impression that beyond this fiscal sort of thing we did with Europe, um, there was not much democratization of Europe, neither in the Corona crisis nor in the Ukrainian war. Europe um, is lacking, uh, I mean, the, let's say Corona first, yeah, what, what the EU did in Corona is basically buying uh, vaccines, yeah, so I, I'm just wondering whether this is sort of the idea of ever closer union, yeah, that we buy uh, vaccines uh, eight times per person in the European Union, by the way, with treaties, uh, you, you know, all these things, yeah, that the treaties have been blacked, I mean, uh, overwritten in black, that the treaties were not transparent, that they, all these things, I think, would need a parliamentary hearing at some point, yeah, because there was a lot of money mo mobilized for pharma industrial sort of treaties and uh, uh, with now guarantees, you, you know, all these things are sort of for discussion now that we are uh, basically revisiting a little bit the, say, I wouldn't say authoritarian, but the uh, the tendencies of the European Union, which were beyond democracy, let's say, yeah, there was a huge uh, impact of uh, pharmaceutical dealing, perhaps done in a moment where we wanted to do good for the people and, and, and giving vaccines, but I'm not ready to accept that sort of the, 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 the that this is a super success of the European Union to having provided vaccines for European citizens, yeah? We did a lot of bad things, for instance, with the um, uh, with the copyrights, we didn't do the uh, generica to Africa to, you know, so the European Union also did a lot of bad things with respect to other countries and uh, uh, so. So Corona was what? Corona was beyond the fiscal package and this buying of vaccines, not a clear European policy. Yeah, I mean, where did you see European unity coming through the Corona management? We cut borders, we closed borders between Flensburg and Denmark, we, we cut families, we cut them also in Elsass between France and Germany or in uh, Lower Austria between Lower Austria and the Czech Republic. We had again, what is the English name? Stacheldraht, Stacheldraht, uh, this barbele, you know, this what military rolls out on borders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know the Danish yeah. word, but not the English. But we had Stacheldraht again at European borders. Yeah. Yes. And, and up until now, nobody went to the European court asking whether this has been sort of legal. Yeah. So I, I have many, many questions again, what the sort of man, Corona management of the EU has been. Yeah. Coming now to Ukraine, we say in the narrative that now Europe is united in a war. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, first, Europe is a peace narrative since 70 years. 70 years we told citizens that Europe is never war again. So I'm very, very concerned that now um, we tell uh, that Europe is uniting uh, via a war. It seems uh, weird to me. Yeah, I'm also uh, contesting that we do this war for the nationally um, integrated uh, Ukraine. Yeah, with um, because Europe was to overcome nation states. So I think Europe is basically in um, denial of two of its basic narratives. Europe is about peace, and Europe is to overcome the nation state. And now we do a war to save a nation state. Yeah, so there's something very weird in it. And what we see is first that the alliance, it's intellectually very weird, I would say. Uh, and we see that this war alliance is not so well functioning, yeah, with this armed traffic and what do the Hungarians do? I mean, we see that this narrative, let's unite Europe in a war, is somehow not really working. Yeah, because citizens are against, at least in Germany, there's a lot of contest uh, um, preparing against the war in Italy too, in France, so there's a peace movement now coming up, you know, so there's a citizen sort of reaction to this. There's a citizen's reactions that uh, people actually do not want to freeze for Kiev, yeah, so like people didn't want to die for Danzig in 1914, yeah, so there is a, there is a populist sort of reaction to what is happening. And, um, and so we see Europe that is lacking sovereignty, lacking uh, autonomy in the armament field and uh, security and defense policy. But we try to tell that this is sort of the only solution that we have. Yeah. So I think this war is more leading to a new European mess than to um, European unity. Comes Olaf Scholz and says, okay, the EU has problems. Yeah, because now we offered enlargement to Ukraine and then the, the Baltic states are there say, OK, we had enlargement talks for 15 years and now Ukraine and Turkey is still with negotiations that actually are suspended. So we need a grand strategy about enlargement. I'm all fine. And then comes Olaf Scholz and said to do this, we really do institutional reform because we cannot enlarge the European Union up to 36 countries or so with the same uh, things, uh, institutional system. And what is interesting that most of the things in his speech, for instance, reducing the number of commissioners at the EU level, yeah, are all the things, if you read to the, the textbooks, yeah, I have one of them because I'm writing a new book which, which come out in, in a month about Europe and Ukraine. Um, but the things Olaf Scholz had in his speech were all already in the declaration of Laken in 2001 and in the constitutional treaty. So we are hanging around for 20 years with the ever same institutional question, which is basically the question whether Europe is ready, yes or no, to cross the Rubicon of federalism. That's basically what it is. Yeah. So the question is now, has the Corona crisis destabilized Europe and the party systems and the populist in such a way? And does the Ukrainian war provides so much pressure on the EU system to really act massively in a radical reform? Uh, exactly. 
yeah, now, because everybody feels like that the EU is crumbling. I mean, look at the Italian elections. We will have elections on 23rd of September. Look at Ancora Italia, the new party, uh, Italexit. Yeah, so it's coming this exit, Frexit, Italexit, sort of who is next to leave the European Union? I mean, the, the, this, these are the questions around. Yeah, so there is a need for radical reform. On the positive side, look at what happened uh, with this citizens conference we had the citizens consultations for one year the um, citizens consultation ended in a report that was presented on the 9th of may this year 22 with 49 uh, wishes or proposals of citizens what the eu should do and the very interesting thing here is that if you look closer at these proposals is that the citizens are ahead of heads and states of government. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the citizens claim for abandoning veto. The citizens claim for majority voting. The citizens, interestingly enough, claim for social pillar. They claim for a European identity card and they claim for harmonized tax systems throughout the European Union. All these are totally progressive sort of proposals coming from the citizens. And the interesting thing will be does this now go into a convention and will we do something like treaty change under Article 48 of the European Union? Will this be now the thing we are in and can this happen or will the Council torpedo these ambitions? Yeah? But um, I think the moment is now and uh, the very fact that Olaf Scholz has been sort of courageous in his speech tells me that now many more people than the populist feel that radical change in the EU system needs to happen. And I think that the people must, to a certain extent, be ahead of the political leaders if you want change. You know, you must have some kind of pressure from below for this for this to happen. If you look at the, the energy crisis, I think it's quite obvious that people have not been ahead of their leaders. I mean, you haven't had a lot of a lot of public demand for saying let's liberate ourselves from russian gas or or let's cut our, our energy so don't you think that that if you look back over the last maybe 15 years you could say that we established a european public a european common discussion and that some kind of political space was inaugurated among european citizens and intellectuals and political leaders and no matter how nationalist some of the populists are they are also debating in a european public space they're inspiring they're they're inspiring each other so it seems to me that looking at the intellectual conditions the public conditions the way that we cheer inspire and protest against each other that what you what european civil society wasn't ready to do after the banking crisis it seems that we are prepared for that now yeah, I mean, we are more prepared for that now. Yes. I'm totally prepared, but I'm very happy that we are now doing a European public space thing here. Yeah, I'm with Danish people, I think mostly, and this is always the most fun of Europe. Yeah, and uh, I think it shows again that we have uh, we have an awareness that Corona and Ukraine was catapulting us somewhere and that some something needs to happen. And what needs to happen, I think, is uh, basically intellectually very clear. Most people dislike the EU or many dislike the EU, the populists, but many others too, because it's dysfunctional. But I think, and, and not it's not only that I think, I have been traveling through Europe through throughout Europe for, for a decade. Yeah. I, I know most of the European towns and, and, and rooms and discussions. It, most people like Europe. 
even the populists, I think this is one of the most important misperceptions, even the populists, even radical uh, Mussolini sort of people in Italy yeah. would go for Europe. They don't do the EU. Yeah. But to say that the populists are not in favor of Europe, of some sort of sort of cultural heritage, whatever Europe, yeah, this seems evident. And I think intellectually now the work is, um, can we go across the EU's flaws, uh, institutional yeah. flaws, dysfunctional, um, and, and doing Europe, but doing Europe in the very sense of what Europe is, which is Respublica, common good. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of um, sort of, you know, cohesion, social cohesion, um, Christian and social democracy like Don Camillo and Pepone. There's a lot of cultural heritage, region, strong region. Uh, Europe is rebellion. Europe is revolution. Europe is a lot of things. Yeah, but Europe is always decentralized, federal um, cohesion policy and so. And if we can make this sort of into a European constitution, say, yeah, um, it would be perhaps an intelligent way to combine this populist protest against yeah. you. If the EU system says, okay, there's so many flaws, we need to reconstitute this in a proper European way as a republic with social cohesion, whatever. Yeah, we, we need to discuss how it could work. But then you would basically uh, take away the very foundments of the populist critique. Yeah. So the, 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 the neat reform of the system would take away the very reasons for the critique of the populist. So it could be a sort of reconciliation strategy if we all say we need Europe, but this Europe institutionally needs to look very, very different from the EU we have. And I would bet that for this, we could also win populist support. And that was bring out ours out, out of this polarization that there is a EU system who needs to defend itself against these populist challenges. Yeah. Which also has a rightness in the in the in the argument, right? Yeah. So yeah. we need to tackle questions like what is sovereignty? What is the nation state? What is really sovereignty? Yeah. Is sovereignty to build common arms in the Ukrainian war, or is sovereignty to link back people's sovereignty to a policy system, right? Polity, yeah. Um, these questions, and I think they are all on the table. A last sentence on this sort of what is the nation state? Because if Europe is to overcome the nation state, look at Ukraine, yeah. Ukraine formerly was Western Galicia, was Hohenzollern. Yeah. Then there is Donbass, Russia. Crimea has always been either Turkish or Russian. So Ukraine is basically the same like today's, say, UK. Uh, the UK is uh, Wales and Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland uh, and then united in the king, right? Look at Spain. It's Galician, it's uh, Catalonia, it's Apulia. So, you know, so um, I just want to make the point that this regional tendency, there's a lot of research. I run this project for all the listeners. It's www.regiopal.eu. So there's a lot of search about uh, the, the subnational entities yeah, coming into play for the constitutive project of Europe. And I think there is really a, um, a leeway to rethink Europe if we consider regions rather than nation states, which are anyway putting many regions into one state, right? And this could also be a solution for Ukraine. I have one last question because time is running. And I must ask you this because, you know, and it's from your book, 
Because, you know, here in Denmark, we usually fetishize the German intellectuals and the philosophers and the sociologists. And, you know, when Ulrich Beck came to Denmark or, you know, Jürgen Habermas did an essay about the war in Ukraine, we put it on the front page. And it's something that we grew up with. And I think at the moment, actually, when I'm looking at Germany, you actually have a very lively discussion about the war. There are actually different positions in Germany. But in your book, there is a damning verdict on the public discourse in Germany during the lockdown. And you, you're very, very critical and say, we need new media, we need new university. It's almost like you declare an intellectual bankruptcy of Germany. Well, I mean, uh, uh, we need to discuss the differentiate between Ukraine and Corona. I wouldn't say, by the way, that Ukrainian discussion is so open. Yeah, I mean, there is, is a lot of hate against those who claim for for negotiations and for uh, amnesties. So, uh, if you say you want negotiations, you are rather out of the discussion. I experienced it. Yeah, I was in a prominent uh, German talk show and couldn't even finish a sentence because I wanted negotiations and amnesties. Yeah, so the the discussion now seems open to open on Ukraine uh, because of populist resentment. Yeah and people want to end this war. But uh, the Ukrainian narrative was pretty locked also into we need this war, it needs to be about rearmament, we want a military victory and nothing else, yeah? Um, but it's breaking up, I agree. On Corona, it was, and uh, I, I realized that we finished uh, 45 minutes more on Europe than on the uh, Corona crisis book that I wrote. But yes, for the first time I have experienced um, basically hermeneutically closed discussion area in Germany. There was no word to say against the Corona measures. Uh, I'm describing this in my book. I'm describing the failure of media. I'm describing the failure of our courts. So there was a pressure of conformity. You could not voice a single criticism. If you were to voice criticism, you were right winger, yeah, or Corona leugner or whatever, Schwurbler, yeah. So, uh, and then we had this sort of, uh, fake news sort of searches and 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 uh, uh, cartels of people who would uh, go for truth finding things in media so a, a pretty absurd discussion and yes i have written in my book that this for me in germany was a total failure of the german left perhaps not total there were some sort of lefty minor voices yeah but if you look at the bigger voices like habermas they were basically going down with the core narrative as did chomsky as did Chishek. And I don't understand why. I mean, there's a lot of to say about the figures who were totally wrong about this Corona sort of thing. But beyond the figures and the criticism of the figures, we basically, in terms of humanity, like um, the concepts of what is living, what is livelihood, yeah? You do a lockdown and then you justify the lockdown. This was totally against our own anthropological sort of way of thinking in Europe. And I was really, really surprised that we had not had more important German voices to voice this. I can only say, you know, the, 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 the book I wrote, how much opposition I got, how much opposition I got. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I think I had the hard, hardest time in my life, the, the month between March this year and June, where the book came out and I gave 40 or more interviews and I was basically pushed to the right wing. I was stigmatized. I was, you know, really destroyed in a way. And I never experienced this in Germany. And I truly hope that this country comes back to a nivelized, so to a really discussion like Switzerland, like the UK, like uh, Sweden or Denmark, where I felt like the discussion was less rigid than here and Austria. It's very interesting. Italy, Austria, and Germany 
which are all basically um, having a you know common dis thinking traditions. But those were the countries who locked down really hermetically around this corona question in a non-democratic way. But I think for us here, your book was very important because, and I should say for those who don't know it, that the lockdown was very draconian in Germany and a lot more radical than it was here. That we were looking at Germany and thinking, well, how do they put up with this? I mean, we can be opportunists in Denmark and we can obey stupid rules and stupid immigration policy. I'm not, but this would not have gone down in, in, in Denmark. I'm, I'm sure of that. So your book was very important to us, actually, to maintain trust in our German neighbors. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ulrich Guru, for taking your time. We look very much forward to your next book, which is out in just one month. Thank you so much, all listeners, and bye-bye uh, to Copenhagen and lovely Denmark. Bye-bye, <laughs> Berlin. Det var min samtale med Ulrike Giro. I næste uge skal vi tale om moralske revolutioner med den verdensberømte filosof Kwame Anthony Appiah. Han skrev for 12 år siden bog, der hedder The Honor Code, How Moral Revolutions Happen. Den handler om, hvordan det kan ske, at pludselig ændre konsensus sig fra den ene dag til den anden. Så de samme mennesker, der synes, det var helt naturligt, at kvinder ikke skulle have stemmeret, synes i dag, det er fuldstændig utænkeligt, at kvinder ikke skulle have stemmeret. Hele den mekanik, altså hvordan et samfund kollektivt ændrer mening og adfærd og holdning til grundlæggende spørgsmål, har jeg altid været optaget af. Kwame Anthony Appiah er en af de bedste til at tænke over, da hans bog er fremragende. Så jeg er glad for, at han har indvidet i at gå tilbage og tale om en 12 år gammel bog. Det gør vi i næste uge. Den her udgave af Langsom Samtaler var ligesom alle andre udgaver produceret af vores gode ven og hjælper, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Tak til hende for, at hun stadigvæk er med på holdet. Tak til jer for, at I stadigvæk lytter med. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.